Please remain standing for just a moment longer. It's not a long passage that we find ourselves in this evening. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. As you turn there, I'll just remind us of where we find ourselves in this little letter of Paul's. Paul has spent basically the entirety of chapter 3 showing us what sanctification looks like lived out in reality, in the day to day, taking it beyond just doctrine and theology, but looking at what it looks like lived out. We've seen so far how the supremacy and lordship of Christ affects the relationship between husband and wife, between parent and child. And this evening, Paul turns his attention to the relationship in the workplace. What does the lordship of Christ look like played out in the relationship between employee and employer? That's where we find ourselves this evening. Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now, brothers and sisters, God's holy and inerrant word. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. My soul clings to the dust. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time for God's blessing on His Word. Gracious Father, we do thank You for the gift that is these 66 books, Your Holy Word. Father, we pray as we hear your word preached to us that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that you would soften the stoniest and rockiest hearts among us to be able to receive the word of God as it is preached. Father, we pray that you would help us and assist us to not just be hearers of the word only deceiving ourselves, but to be doers of it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. A master of ceremonies said to the guest of honor at a particular retirement dinner, as a token of our appreciation, we have created this special gold watch to serve as a reminder of your many years with us. It needs lots of winding up, it's always late, and every day at a quarter to five it stops working. Well, the saying has been around for quite some time, long before I was put on this earth, that good help is hard to find. And if you've paid attention at all in the last three to four years, you know that statement is more true today than it has ever been. I was informed by a handful of different people that Chick-fil-A's have wised up over the years and are smart enough to know that when they come to a particular area, they hire vastly more employees than they actually need. And why might that be? Because they know good and well that this statement is true, that good help is hard to find. They know when they hire however many people they hire initially that it's going to be a small fraction of that that remains a month down the line. So what does it mean? What does it look like for us as Christians to be a good worker? 
to be a good employee, to be a good employer. What does a Christian employee look like? And is that any different than a secular, an atheist employee? Interestingly, Paul devotes more space to this topic, more verses, more words to answering this question, to addressing this topic, than he does any one of the other relationships he's already covered in this epistle. If you look just quickly at chapter 3, he only gives one verse of direction to wives. He only gives one to husbands. He only gives two to the relationship between children and parents. But we have from verse 21 of chapter 3 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4 dedicated to a workplace relationship description. To the relationship between master and servant or in a modern context, employee and employer. And so what's the answer? What does the supremacy of Christ look like in the workplace? What does sanctification look like lived out between the employee and the employer? Well, God's word this evening is going to offer us three sets of instructions. That Christians work from the heart, work for the Lord, and work knowing there will be reward. And before we dig into those points, I don't think I could get away with just gliding past the big elephant in the room or elephant in the passage, as it were, which is the S word. Paul does here address slavery. But as many, many, many an individual on social media has complained regarding this passage, he doesn't address it the way many of us would like to see him address it. You see, Paul here doesn't, in his address of slavery, decry or openly denounce it, does he? We don't find Paul mentioning slavery to say, stop doing that. And I think that does raise a fair question. What's going on here? What, what's going on? Is Paul supporting slavery here by not openly condemning it? That's the question. Is Paul simply reinforming the evil status quo of slavery in his day? And the straightforward and simple answer from the beginning is absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so one, I want to be clear here that slavery, as referred to in the Bible, is drastically different than the slavery that usually comes to our minds as Americans. The slavery both of the Old Testament and of the New Testament Greco-Roman world was a drastically different situation than the chattel slavery that we find looking back a few hundred years to the African slave trade. We find very clearly as far back as the Pentateuch in Exodus 21.16 that God's word has always forbidden people stealing and people selling. Look with me at God's word there. Exodus 21.16 we find... That whoever steals a man and sells him, and also anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And so God's word has made clear from the earliest pages in the Bible, not just that God is against man-stealing and man-selling, but how much more against it could he be than to declare it a capital offense? It puts those who would steal other human beings in the same category as murderers and rapists in God's law. It doesn't seem to be a high view that God has of them. Listen to this quotation from the ESV Study Bible. This is in the preface there of the ESV Study Bible, uh, giving us a, a pretty straightforward description of the slavery that we find described in the Old and New Testaments. And I want you to notice as I read through this how different this is than the chattel slavery that happened in the African slave trade. 
we find there, it says, Thus in the Old Testament times, one might enter slavery most often either voluntarily to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or in involuntary situations by birth or being captured in battle. And even then, there were strict protections for all in servitude in ancient Israel, provided by the Mosaic Law, including specific provisions for the time of release from that slavery. And in New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve as master for a set time not exceeding seven years. Except for those in Caesar's uh, person, in his prison, who were held and contracted for a maximum of 14 years. When the contract expired, notice this, it's a lot different than the slavery we think about. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given the entirety of his wage that had been saved for him by his master, and officially declared a freed man. Drastically different than the slavery that often comes to our minds. It's not remotely the same thing. And two, I'd just point out before we dig into our point this evening, that Paul, I think, seemingly, Paul, I think, seemingly is recognizing that real lasting change doesn't happen from the outside in or from the down up. But rather, real change happens from the inside out and from heaven down. And so we find that Paul's chief aim in this epistle, as his other epistles, that his chief desire here is to see hearts and souls changed, not immediately institutions. And that through those hearts and souls being changed, converted, reborn through the gospel of Christ Jesus, that the hope was, and the trust was, that in the midst of that heart change through the gospel that in turn, we would see a change and a shift brought about to societal structures such as slavery. And so, now that we can set that one to the side, God's Word offers us three sets of instructions this evening. That Christians work from the heart, work for the Lord, and work knowing there will be reward. Look with me at verses 22 through 23. We're told that Christians should work not by way of eye service, or as people-pleasers, but rather with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. This is how the Christian is to work heartily, with sincerity of heart. That is, we're to work with integrity. We're to work with the fullness of who we are, with the fullness of our capabilities. The word Paul uses in verse 23, that most of our translations convey heartily, actually conveys that we are to work with the fullness of who we are in our person, so much so that some have even translated it to say that we should work with a whole-souled work. But I think the idea remains the same. Regardless of what employment you find yourself in, do it with everything that you are. Use the entirety of the faculties and gifts that God has given you to do it to the best of your ability. And so the opposite is true. That the Christian is not to be found working half-heartedly with the type of work that could so easily characterize the majority of workplaces that we find in our community and culture today. The Christian isn't to see work as simply a a means to an end, uh, to pay off debts or to save up money or as an unnecessary, unfortunate aspect of life. This isn't how we're supposed to see work. 
We aren't to have the mentality as we see so often. You can even see it on, on bumpers, TGIF, this working for the weekend. I'm going to do my 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. I'm going to begrudgingly go through the grind, as so many describe the work week. I'm going to do that just to where I can get to the weekend. No, the Christian is to work wholeheartedly, with sincerity, heartily, with the whole of our being. We're not to see work as a means to an end, but work actually is a blessing in and of itself. I think we've experienced the opposite side of this. Unless you're just a, a way more patient person than I am, surely you, like me, have found yourself in a store, maybe a Walmart or a, or a restaurant, and been faced with an employee that is seemingly bothered by you simply expecting them to do their job. Maybe you found yourself in a restaurant and asked for some napkins or a refill only to have the waitress or waiter huff and puff all the way back to the kitchen, frustrated that you would put them out in that way to expect them to do the bare minimum of their job. Maybe you found yourself in a store, I won't name names, Walmart, uh, where you need to find a product, and if you can actually, if you're lucky enough to track down an employee and ask them where it is, you can see the frustration and anger on their face. How dare you ask them to do the bare minimum of their job? Well, brothers and sisters, God's word is commanding us as Christians to not do our work in this way. We are to work with whole-souled service, with sincerity, conscientiously, wholeheartedly. And I think if we're honest, it's not just the Walmart employee or the restaurant employee. Every single one of us have been guilty of this at some point in time, to some degree or another. Whether it be with a job or with school or maybe even with a, with a sport that you find yourself in. I think each of us, in our fallen depravity, have a tendency to become half-hearted with our work. We start strong, we start passionate, we start enthusiastic, we start showing up early and leaving late, and then you fast forward six, eight, nine months, two years, three years, and we start finding ourselves more like that employee. <laughs> Begrudgingly, half-heartedly, dragging ourselves through the work week as we're doing our work. I think this is especially true if we feel that we've been underpaid, or undervalued, or underappreciated, unnoticed, that we can begin to form a tendency to render half-hearted service. But God's word is calling us as Christians not to do that kind of work. Notice, he's speaking in this original context to who? To slaves. To slaves and servants. And who could be more underappreciated and unnoticed and underpaid than them? And yet Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is calling them and us to render a wholehearted whole-souled work in all that we do. And this is what sanctification looks like lived out in the life of the believer. Just as we observed previously in this chapter in regards to the wife and the husband and the parent and the child, we observed previously in Colossians 3 that one of the primary ways that God has given for a Christian wife to show her sanctification is how? Through her submission to her husband. And husbands, what is one of the primary ways that God has given us as husbands to live out our sanctification? But through the love of our wives. And that Christian children, what is the chief way that God has given you in day-to-day -day life to live out your sanctification? But through obedience to your parents. So too here we find that Paul is showing us that one of the, the main primary ways that God has given us to live out our sanctification is that as Christian employees... 
to give and render wholehearted work. See, we have this tendency to isolate certain aspects of our lives, and we designate we designate uh, this aspect as Christian aspects, and this aspect is not. Uh, we make a dichotomy of what we consider to be holy and what we consider to be secular in our lives. And so I, I think often when we think about our sanctification, we, we tend to think only in terms of our Bible reading or our prayer time or our family worship or our church attendance and things such as that. But those things only make up, if you really think about it, what, 1% to 5% of our daily and weekly lives? 99% probably of the time is not spent doing those things that we designate as the holy Christian things, is it? 99% of our lives on a day-to-day basis is spent being fathers and mothers, parents and children, employees and employers. And brothers and sisters, Christ claims lordship over those parts just as much as he does every other part. There is not one aspect of our lives over which Christ does not loudly proclaim mine, and therefore over which we should not see consistent sanctification and growth. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, how am I showing forth and living out the supremacy of Christ? Not just at church, not just in my quiet times or my devotions, But how am I living out that sanctification? How am I showing forth the supremacy of Christ in my marriage? In the relationship I have with my children? And in the work I render at my place of employment? To this point, Martin Martin Luther offers us some wisdom. He wrote that the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So brother and sister, you don't just do your job in a Christian way by slapping a a, a cross lapel on your jacket. Or by throwing on some Christian music in the background at your office. Or by slapping a what would Jesus do bracelet on your wrist or, or tagging your car with a Bible verse. Those are fine and okay and probably have a good place. But you do your job, brother and sister, in a Christian way by doing your job well. By doing your job to the best of your ability to the glory of Christ. And so we find that whether you're a farmer or a doctor, a homemaker or a teacher, a lawyer or a student, or some other thing, the call is all ultimately the same for you if you're a Christian. Whatever work that God has called you to do, He has called you to do it wholeheartedly and with sincerity. Whatever work God has called you to do, He has called you to be the best at it you can be for His glory. God desires your whole-souled service and whatever work you find yourself attending to for His glory. Which leads us to our second point. We work from the heart, and we work for the Lord. Look with me at verse 23. Paul writes there that Christians should work as for the Lord and not for men. And I think this means a few things for us. First, similar in regards to the relationship between husband and wife and child and parent, we don't render wholehearted work in response to the worthiness of our employer to receive that work. Or to put that another way, we don't only do work to the best of our ability, wholehearted, whole-souled work, when we think our boss deserves it. That's not how this works. That's not the call. 
You may have, as you were listening to the last point, thought, well, I hear you, but my boss is just the worst. Or that teacher is just not fair. Or that coach is just the worst coach we've ever had. He doesn't make any good calls. They don't deserve my wholehearted work. Shoot, that boss doesn't even deserve my half-hearted work. Well, you'll be happy then to hear that the Christian is not ultimately rendering that work to their boss, but rather to the Lord. One guy, this story I found in a Reader's Digest article, one guy told of being on a flight where there was an obnoxious gentleman, what the children today would call a Karen, just complaining over every little inconvenience that was happening on the plane. And trust me, look, I hate flights. I hate planes. I get it. But apparently this guy was just going on and on and on and berating berating the flight attendant over, over everything, complaining about everything. He was raising his voice, starting to get almost a, a little bit physical. And, and though the stewardess would have had every right, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it, is this story true? I don't know. It was in Reader's Digest. I, I find myself doubting it simply because every interaction like this I've ever seen or heard of on the news, they get removed from the flight and arrested. So maybe this was pre-9-11. I don't know. But after observing this for, for quite a while, the man that was observing this called over uh, the stewardess and wanted to compliment her on how good of an attitude that she had had with this extremely difficult man. And the gentleman asked for her name so that he could commend her to her employer uh, so that maybe she could get a promotion, that she should get recognized for how patient and understanding she was with such a difficult gentleman. And he was kind of confused when the stewardess responded, thank you, sir, but I don't actually work for American Airlines. And he was confused because when he looked at her uniform, it was an American Airlines uniform. And when he looked at her name tag, it was an American Airlines name tag. And so he, he kind of scratched his head and paused and said, y- you don't? And she said, no. I work for Jesus. American Airlines just pays the freight. And it's silly. And look, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I think, I think the message is the right message. I think the idea is the right idea that we're supposed to have as Christians. Uh, regardless of whether or not your boss deserves your whole soul work. God does. And it's to him, ultimately, that we render that service. And so we're told in Philippians that we do all things without complaint or grumbling. And that should apply to our work. Children, that should apply to your school or your athletics. Anything that you're going to participate in, give it 100% or don't do it. Knowing that it is rendered to our more than worthy Lord Jesus Christ. Second, I think it means that the Christian is to be free from superficial work. Paul refers to that superficial work here. He uses the phrase eye service or or people-pleasing work. Uh, This is the type of work that you find when you have an individual who, when his boss is around, he's working really hard and diligently. he's, He's working away, working away, working away, impressing his boss. And then the moment his boss steps out of the office, he is doing the absolute bare minimum he can to not get in trouble or get caught. This is, this is eye service. This is people-pleasing work. This is superficial work. And the Christian is not to be a worker who merely tries to give the appearance of busyness. Uh, the Christian is not to be a worker who merely tries to give the appearance of working hard, but then who simply is really just doing the bare minimum to skim by. That's eye service. It's people-pleasing. It's superficial. The natural tendency, I think, of the slave 2,000 years ago probably isn't all that different from the natural tendency of, the, of most workers today in our culture. I think most individuals, at least in my life, 
most guys that I went to school with, that I, that I knew growing up, especially in high school and college, talk to them about their job. No matter how good they're getting paid, no matter how kind and understanding their boss is, they will make very clear to you that they are doing the bare minimum they can just to skim by and keep their job. This is not the type of work that God has commanded of Christians. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, commanding Christians to work as those constantly aware of a set of eyes upon us in our labor. And it's not the eyes of your particular boss or employer or teacher or coach, but the eyes of Christ. We are told to do quality work, not for eye service, not not to please people, but as unto the Lord himself. And thirdly, we see then that any field of work we find ourselves in should be seen as Christian work. Again, thinking about the dichotomies that we make in life, I think this is another one that we find ourselves struggling with often. But we have this tendency to make a dichotomy in our culture and our understanding of work. We think often, way too often, that there are, on the one hand, spiritual jobs. Pastor, missionary, church planner, seminary professor, Bible translator. And then on the other hand, you have secular jobs. Lawyers, carpenters, electricians, doctors, homemakers, teachers. We make this dichotomy. And we think of jobs like pastor and missionary as being vocations and callings of God that have been given to these individuals to expand his kingdom on earth. And yet we fail to see that to the Christian, God has given any and all jobs as a vocation and calling to do exactly that, to expand his kingdom on earth. And this, brothers and sisters, is a reformed theology of vocation. We're to manifest the lordship of Christ in any work we find ourselves employed into the furtherance of his kingdom. Uh, We're to have the mindset that in any job we find ourselves in, we're not there ultimately for a paycheck, not even ultimately to provide for, for ourselves and our family's needs, but ultimately we are in that employment we find ourselves in to the furtherance of the kingdom of King Jesus. Whatever vocation you find yourself in, whatever work you find yourself doing, you have a vocation and a calling from God with dignity to bring about his glory in that work. And this is why Martin Luther, to to quote him again, this is why Martin Luther said, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. These same principles can and should be applied to any and all contemporary Christians in their places of work and employment. And so then, we can consider just a few examples. The housewife, Carly wasn't a fan that that was my first example, but she's not here. Uh, The housewife should cook her meals as if it were to Jesus Christ himself eating it. Should teach her children as if it was a lesson being prepared for Jesus himself. Should Should clean her house as if Christ himself were the guest coming over. The soldiers should obey their orders. The teachers should instruct their children. The doctors should treat their patients. Waiters serve their clients. Sales assistants help their customers. Accountants audits their books. Factory workers tend to their labor. Farmers tend to their crops. Truck drivers make deliveries. Secretaries answer the phones. Yard workers mow. All as if each were serving and tending to and working as unto the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the reformed understanding of vocation. This is the biblical understanding of vocation and work. If the mindset and work of Christian slaves could be radically transformed by working as to Jesus, then what excuse do you and I have? And so whether you find yourself being a truck driver or a homemaker, 
a teacher or a lawyer, a farmer or a pastor, a student or a doctor or, or something else. If you are a Christian, then you are doing Christian work. You are to be doing Christian work. Doing it not with superficial, people-pleasing eye service, but doing it to the best of your ability, with whole-souled service, as if you were working unto the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so first, we work from the heart. Second, we work for the Lord. And third and finally, we work knowing there will be reward. Look with me at verses 24 through 25. Paul writes there that the Christian should work knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. The Christian, then, is to work knowing there will be reward. Or, uh, to put that another way, we do our work expectantly. We do our work expectantly. We do our work with an eye to what has been prepared for us. And we should remember the original context here. Paul is speaking to slaves. Slaves were not rewarded, definitely not proportionately to their labors. Sure, they were given food and water, shelter, basic survival necessities, but they weren't paid for their work, at least not for a long time. And yet, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, brother, sister, you're going to be rewarded. In addition to that, he adds specifically how they will be rewarded. That they'll be rewarded with the inheritance. Now imagine being one of those slaves hearing those words. You don't own land. Your family doesn't own land. In fact, in Greco-Roman law, you were prohibited from receiving inheritance as a slave. It wasn't something that was allowed. And then you hear these words read aloud from the Apostle Paul. That, brother and sister, you will be rewarded with the inheritance. And how is this? How is it that even a slave could look forward to the inheritance they would be rewarded with? It's because ultimately they serve the true master. The one who sits on his throne in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, whether, whether you be a slave or an electrician, a teacher or a doctor, a homemaker or a farmer, he will reward your labors with an inheritance. Even, with, even when earthly masters and employers do not. I think each of us have at some time or, or will, if we have not yet felt robbed of that which was due to us in our labor. Maybe you found yourself in a situation where you worked harder than any of your coworkers and yet you were passed over for that promotion. Maybe you've had an employer that just outright didn't pay you fairly for the work that you were doing. Maybe you've watched as your retirement, savings, and investments have gotten devastated by the absolute theft which is government-induced inflation. I think we can all relate to that one, I hope. We, we've all felt robbed at some point or another in our lives, and yet Paul is assuring us, you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. This is what's called the principle of God's remunerative justice. We're likely more familiar with the other side of that, his retributive justice. That's where God punishes the evildoer. We, we like that one because not, we're not thinking about us in that, right? But there's another side to that coin. Just as much as we can count on God to punish those who do wicked, brothers and sisters, we can also trust in God to reward those who do justly, those who do rightly. According to Psalm 58, one day it will be so clear that all of mankind will be able to say aloud, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul tells us, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap 
if we do not give up. There's a flip side in verse 25. Paul gives us both sides of this coin. He tells us that the wrongdoer will also be paid back for the wrong he has done. God will show no partiality. And it's a little vague there in the Greek who Paul is talking to. Is he talking to the slave or is he talking to the master? I think it's intentionally vague. I think he's talking to both. He's giving a warning and a promise to both slave and master, employee and employer. Though no one else might not see, though no one else might not understand, God sits high and lifted up on his throne, surveying all, seeing all, understanding all. And he will give payment justly. Psalm 62, 12. God will render to a man according to his work. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one according to that which he has done. And brothers and sisters, this is true whether you are an employee or an employer. Paul is warning both the slave and the master. Paul is warning the slave, the employee that defrauds their employers of the proper work they owe them. And he is warning the master, the employer who exploits those that serve them, that the Lord, our ultimate master, is watching. And he will pay back each according to what they have done without partiality. And so the Christian is to work knowing that there will be reward. We work expectantly. We, we keep our eyes on the prize. And Christ is the best example there is for this. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that Christ was able to suffer everything that happened on that cross. How? For the joy that was set before him. Jesus did the work that was set before him. A humble life of flawless obedience and a brutal, torturous death upon a cross, he was able to do it because he kept his eye towards the joy that was set before him. He knew of the reward and the inheritance that awaited him. And so he was able to do his work and do it well. We who are in Christ will also be rewarded, we're told in God's word. Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 16, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In Ephesians 1, we're told that we have obtained an inheritance. You notice the way Paul words that? It's already happened, according to Paul. You will receive an inheritance, but Paul says it's so certain, we can be so confident that we can speak of it in the present. You and I, brothers and sisters, have already received our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And so, we as Christians, we work from the heart, we work for the Lord, and we work knowing there will be reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would enable us by the help of your Holy Spirit to be obedient to it. Lord, we pray for those of us who are employees, that you would help us to do our work, regardless of what it be, to the best of our ability. Lord, that we wouldn't make excuses, that we wouldn't grumble, that we wouldn't complain. But Father, in everything that we do, that we would work heartily, sincerely, wholesouledly, as though we're doing our work to the Lord. Father, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here, that you would help them and help me to see clearly that regardless of what work we find ourselves employed in, that as Christians, it is Christian work to be redeemed for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the furtherance of his kingdom. Father, we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.